This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're catching up with Ed Blackburn. Ed's a busy man managing a 23,000-acre Wongaburi station near Mandurin, as well as being heavily involved in his own family's nearby operation on Gowan Bray. Ed has a long history in commercial agronomy, but in recent years has relished the opportunity to step into a management role, overseeing the livestock production and cropping enterprises on Wongaburi Station. In today's episode, we dive into the world of dual-purpose cropping, and Ed outlines the process for producing a quality dual-purpose crop. As you'll hear him explain, the key to success involves a strict focus on timeliness of management operations, especially when considering grazing of these crops. As a huge believer in dual-purpose crops, Ed likes their flexibility and adaptability across seasons and livestock enterprises. Local Land Services Mixed Farming Advisor, Ron Leach, sat down with Ed at Gowan Bray over a cuppa and a delicious slice of orange cake to bring you this great chat. G'day listeners. Today I'm with a mate from uni, Ed Blackburn, in between Mandurin and Coonabarabran. Ed, welcome to the Seeds for Success podcast. Thank you, Rowan. Ed, we're on your family place, Gowan Bray, today, but you've also got a um, another day job that you're involved with. Can you just give us a bit of a rundown on what you do here? Yeah, that's right, Ron. So I guess we've got a few different irons in the fire. I manage an aggregation of properties for another guy, and it's sort of under the banner of Wongaburai Station. It's a group of about 13 properties totaling about 23,000 acres and um, luckily it's not far from our home properties. It's We join a fair few boundaries. So that keeps me busy during the week and then I work in with mum and dad on our family farms as well and my wife and I have just bought a property next door to one of their blocks that we sort of run in together as well. So there's a fair bit happening. Sounds like you've got two full-time jobs there. So your own family place, What what are you sort of – enterprises and a bit of background there yeah so a bit lucky in that between the managing stuff and and the home properties our main show is uh cattle across the board so that does make things a bit easier so at, at home we've been traditionally shorthorn cattle with some angus through as well and then the stuff that i manage is it's all angus females with waggy bulls over them so everything's just a terminal f1 they're the main in terms of livestock and then to back that up, we do a fair bit of dual purpose cropping, mainly winter wheat and oats as well. And the pastures on the place? Traditionally, it's been, I think this area has certainly moved towards the subtropicals, which are very well proven. I think they, they do suit our climate and there's no doubt about their productivity and, and persistence, which is very important. Something that we're playing with a little bit probably in the last three years is a bit more temperate pasture like some more temperate grasses we've been using a bit of coxfoot and brome so i guess we're just in a bit of a testing phase with that the first ones we've put in are still persisting very well but they've also only had to go through 
2020 to, to 22 so far. So, yeah, three very good years. Hasn't really tested them yet. A bit out of the ordinary, the, the winters we've had the last few years, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. They've had their challenges as well, but yeah, so we'll see how those temperates fare in a bit of a drier season and hopefully they hang around. So why have you selected that Coxfoot and Brome? I've sort of felt that out of those four main temperates, like Coxfoot, Fescue, Phalaris and the Brome, that they're probably the couple of the tougher ones that are more likely to persist. We're probably a little bit north and west of that traditional temperate grass zone. So, yeah, we're just trying to push it a little bit. I think we might be a little bit far northwest for Phalaris. And I guess the fescue could have a fit, but just how you need to graze fescue is probably more the reason we've left it out and gone coxfoot and brome. So, yeah, so far so good. And do you think it's a bit to do with soil type? What are your soil types here? Yeah, so I guess across all the country we go from the lightest of light sandy loam you could find probably sandy loams being kind, to very nice black basalt self-munching soils, a lot of good red currajong and, and red basalt as well. So we've got a fair variation in the country, which is handy. Obviously, we're still going to be pushing subtropicals onto the lighter country and a lot of that is already done. I guess where we're putting these temperate grasses with their lucerne and, and annual legumes is more on country that we don't mind coming back to crop in the future as long as they last for four or five years then it's sort of taking the place of just a straight loosened stand given that we're primarily cattle and fills that option of having to put in oats every year as a grazing winter that's right and we're certainly not trying to get away from doing our winter forage cropping and i think it's very important knowing that you're going into winter with a stored moisture bank that you can extract even if the wind is a bit dry and I think this year is a pretty good example of that like there's no growth anywhere in the grass country but the forage crop areas are, are growing pretty well just at the moment but it with the temperate pastures it the idea is I suppose if we do get an autumn break we're in the position to have feed within you know four or five weeks for essentially no work. I think that attracts a lot of people to them and filling that sort of Early autumn feed gap, I think, is pretty attractive to most. Mate, just going to the Wongabori Station uh, work you do, it's a big operation. So they're primarily cattle, as you said, with Wagyu. Is, have they got any other enterprises on there? Yeah, so going back a couple of years, there was also first cross ewes producing second cross lambs and we still do have probably a quarter of those numbers left now. We're just in the transition phase out of sheep or out of breeding lambs anyway not to say we won't trade some decent numbers of lambs when it when the stars align but big part of it's the labor there's a lot of lot of work in sheep and you know for those sort of couple of thousand ewes we can replace them with a couple hundred cows and make things a lot easier from a labor perspective and the gross margins that I've sort of done you know bring cattle out on top so that that's the biggest part of it and also with the sheep I feel like you're always favouring the sheep. If there's a good paddock of loosen or something or or a good crop, it's normally the sheep that get it and then the, the cows have to stand over the other side of the fence and watch. So, 21,000 acres here, That's you obviously need a fair few hands on deck to help. Was it just a decision around sourcing labour and moving away from intensive operation? 
I think it was primarily about the gross margin to be had. You know, if, if the sheep came out on top, we definitely would have stuck with them. So I think the labour saving is a benefit. It's probably not the reason. But, yeah, we just crunched the numbers on, like brought it back to a per DSE sort of gross margin and the, the cattle, yeah, were, were pretty well ahead. So it was hard to find a reason to stay in the animals that are more work and making less money per DSE. That was, that's primarily where, how we looked at it. No, I think that's a good strategy to take to sort of primarily just base it off your numbers. It's something you can sort of take from some of the bigger businesses in the area that even though you, you might love your sheep or, or cows or crop, it's a business decision in the end. That's right. And I'm sure the sheep will shine again and then um, probably wish we were still in them. Certainly since I did those numbers, the Wagyu price has halved, but the lamb price has almost done the same as well. So yeah, they'd be different numbers now, but I think the, the winner would still be the same for us anyway. We were chatting just before over a delicious slice of orange cake about your mate, um, Harry Clifton, that's been on the podcast before. Have you got any, any words to pass on to Harry? Well, I have told him that I base most of the blame on his podcast for the Wagyu market doing what it's done. But yeah, anyway, I think that was out of our control. Yeah. For any background listeners, there's a podcast we released back in about January of 2023, sort of spruiking the the benefits of the F1 WAG market. And about two weeks after that came out with Harry, obviously due to factors beyond Harry's control, the market really uh, took a downturn. But um, it's good to know that the locals in the Kuna district are giving him a fair ribbing for that. Mate, so just on that cattle note, both your manager's job and on your family place, it sounds like you've got crossbreds are a big part of the operation? Yeah, so I guess crossbreeding totally with the managed stuff because it's all Wagyu bulls over Angus cows. Everything's a terminal F1 essentially. Then at home, like I said, we, it's traditionally been a shorthorn breeding enterprise. We're just mixing a few more Angus bulls through there as well. And Is that to get that hybrid vigour or is it chasing the, the black coat? It started just having some Angus bulls for heifers just to rely on their calving genetics a bit more. But then I guess that's led to us quite liking the, the shorthorn Angus cross female as a mother. And that's just sort of where we're going at the moment. We're a bit of an each way bet. They're a pretty animal. I do like the, the shorthorns and getting the blacks in there as well. It's, they're very nice. <laughs> so how long have you been the manager for it at Wongaburi Station? Yeah, so... Bit over two years, mate. Easter 2021, we sort of got into it. And you might have given it away with some of your knowledge and, and talk of pastures and crops before, but what did you do prior to that? Yeah, so before that, I was an agronomist with a couple of CRTs for about 10 years after uni. So then then this job opportunity came up and, yeah, it took a bit of a change to go and put my theories into practice, I suppose. Yeah, rubber's got to hit the road now. <laughs> so how do, you, how do you think agronomy prepared you for a job in management? Yeah, I think it certainly helped. It's good to have that sort of base knowledge that I can just pull out very quickly. But yeah, certainly there's a lot to managing places that it didn't prepare me for as well. You know, just having to own those problems and you, you got to see things right through to the end. Whereas I guess when I was an agronomist, you'd go into a place and throw in your two bobs and then drive out the front gate. And that was the last you had to sort of worry about it and shake your head at, at why the farmer didn't take your advice. Oh, exactly. Yeah, but getting that, the other perspective of, of finance and money and actually implementation is a bit of a different 
Exactly, yeah, and especially now that we've got our own block as well, that's um, it, it goes the next level with the finance stuff as well. And timeliness of operation, like it's all a bit of a tightrope there to walk, isn't it? Yeah, it really does. I guess I've got to practice what I preach now. It's easy to tell someone they've got to be timely, but it's when you've got to get out and get a few thousand acres of crop sown. Over the Easter long weekend or, yeah, yeah. That's it. Or hopefully in a few weeks in late February, it's, um, yeah, there's plenty happening. And obviously on Wongabori, you'd, you'd have quite a few staff managing that place. How many staff are over there? We run it, I wouldn't say lean, but it's uh, we don't have staff coming at our ears either. There's myself and up until very recently, it's been myself and two other guys and we've just, just put on a fourth guy to help us out as well, which has been excellent. It's just letting us do things a bit and, yeah, get to a few of the improvement jobs, you know, more than just getting into the production stuff. And so do you use contractors we use contractors for boom spraying, harvest, stock cartage, that sort of stuff, or oh, fencing. Yeah, we do all our own sowing and stuff like that. Mate, I just want to dive into dual purpose crops. I want to sort of pick your brain being an agronomist and you've got a fair experience with it up here. So what are the staple dual purpose crops on your family place? Yeah, so I guess over the last probably 20 years we've used winter wheat pretty heavily at home for the, the grazing use through the winter and then to be able to lock it up and, and get a, a reasonable grain yield. You're always going to be a little bit behind the main season crop on the grain side of things but that's for the benefit of hopefully getting 100 or 120 days grazing out of it through the winter which is very valuable. It started with varieties like Wyler and then that moved over to Wedgetail and then now we're on to Kitty Hawk. So that's the sort of winter wheat varieties we've used it is the awned ones that can still, they've still got a good grain package but you can sow them sort of early March around here and, and get a good wing of grazing out of them. That's probably something we've, we've implemented on the managed country as well this year. We've got about four or 500 acres of winter wheat that we're currently grazing and we're just trying to scope out when we lock them up now to try and I guess find the sweet spot between maximising grain yield but also that's got to be balanced with putting kilos on wagyus which can potentially be more rewarding as well. We might take it back a step actually and, and sort of go through what you'd consider sort of ideal prep and implementation of a, of a dual purpose crop. For the dual purpose crops and it it's the same with main season crops as well, obviously, but I think it's highlighted even more with your dual purpose crops that everything's just got to be so timely. And we were, we were saying before when we're having a coffee, this season's transpired as well with a very dry, well, a zero rainfall in May. June wasn't much. I think we had a little bit of rain early April, so there was sort of three months there almost straight with very minimal rain. So any dual purpose crops that weren't sown and up and away sort of in March, then they might only get a month's grazing early August and then if you want grain, you're going to have to lock them up. So whereas we've got plenty of crop that we've got cattle on now that, and we've got wheat that steers have been on for six weeks and that's all on the back of being a little bit bit of a gambler when with your sowing time. It's risk and reward, I think. And that all goes back to everything else being timely, like having clean fallows, storing your moisture, being ready to go with your fertiliser and you know, ready to get on the air seeder and, and jag it in as soon as you see a bit of a forecast coming. 
going through the season, say you do get that early opportunity, normally you'd be looking to graze around June. Yeah, we always like to think we could have them on early May, which is very doable if you can get them sown early March, then that's seven or eight weeks from sowing until till grazing. That's provided you get some good establishing rain. Plant growth rates are very, very different in April than what they are in, in June. Yeah, exactly. And then um, so I guess in a normal year we'd hope to have them on through May, June, July, August, so f- sort of four months there getting 100 or 120 days grazing and then kick their stock out at the end of August and then move on onto the grain stage. Is it a time of year thing for you or are you, are you looking at the growing point in the plan as well? Yeah, I think that's probably one of the biggest drivers is actually getting down and pulling a few tillers out and, and slicing them down the middle and, and trying to pick where your developing nodes are and, and watching those nodes start to move, you know, because one variety can be so different to another and even the same variety from one year to the next will often do a different thing. So that's the only true way to know is just watch what the nodes are doing. Once they start to move up and space out, that's a pretty fair sign you need to get off. Fertiliser strategies in that. I've actually seen a bit of work you did with, uh, was it GRDC or MLA at a at a meetup forum recently? I think I might have mentioned it at the meetup thing in Dubbo last year it was a bit of work that I did myself when I was an agro at Cooler with with Haynes Farm and Hardware and we Will Sutton at Yalambi out towards Castless we it was like a 12-month nitrogen monitoring program and essentially took deep nitrogen tests from harvest one year and then right round to harvest the following year and it just couldn't have got a nicer curve of nitrogen availability or unavailability coming out of that winter when it's grown all its biomass and then when you lock it up in August, I think this crop was it was just about running on fumes for nitrogen. It might have had you know, six or eight units left per hectare and then you're turning around hoping that you're going to get three or four tonne of grain out of this crop and it's got almost zero effective starting nitrogen for that grain phase. So it, it really showed that probably our standard practice back then would have been 100 kilos of starter 15 and then maybe 120 of urea pre-drilled and then that was finished whereas it just shows that they can use so much nitrogen. And I guess the important thing to remember from a, an economics point of view is there's a big pull on your nitrogen through that grazing stage but it doesn't mean it's all taken out of the paddock. It's just sort of above the ground in manure and trampled dry matter so it's not like it's actually costing you that amount of nitrogen year to year. It's just it's a real short-term shortage. It just might not be as available. It's just not in the ground. How long does that sort of stuff that's tied up in urine and feces, how long would you estimate that? Probably beyond me, Leachie. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it, it's definitely through that sort of three months, like August, September, October, when you're expecting your crop to do its grain thing. It was just a very stark graph that, yeah, you were probably hoping for something that was almost impossible. So it's probably... Um, a pretty crucial lesson to do soil testing and know exactly how much you, is going to be there for harvest. I think soil testing and just having a realistic budget of how much dry matter you're going to grow, sort of knowing that cereal crop leaf is about 3% nitrogen, so it's pretty easy to figure out if you're going to grow six tonnes of dry matter, that's a lot of units of nitrogen, it's about 170 or 80 units of N just tied up in that dry matter. So 
the past few years are a great example of some really different seasons. Is there some consistent strategies or like objectives that you use regardless of the season? Yeah, I guess probably regardless of the season where we're always planning to get our dual purpose crops in. In a tougher year, they might become a graze only crop and we don't manage to take them to grain. But yeah, even in the drought years, we were lucky here. You didn't have to go far west and and guys weren't able to get those forage crops up for a we only got a limited graze, but it was very valuable and it just sort of limped our stock into the feedlot, which was very rewarding at the time. So I guess wet or dry, we're always trying to get our forage crops in. I think they've got a good fit, whether it's a, a good or a bad year. And um, the last three years with the wet of 2021 and 22, it's certainly been some challenges. I think the stock have battled a bit just with um, we certainly didn't, put as much weight gain on crops through those three years as what we did in sort of say a better year like 2016, 17. Just they were bogging around up to their elbows in mud and yeah, it was just tough going. So I think ironically, you know, the last three years were very, very wet and the season we're in at the moment is probably only just for us where we are. We've got a lot of very similar challenges like the last three years we've had no legume because we've just had so much grass bulk coming into the autumn that we haven't been able to get any legume through it and then this year we just haven't had the rain to get the legume up so wet or dry we sort of haven't had the legume the last three or four years. So they've been important for a a quality perspective you mean? That's right. I think this year even though it's a bit dry we've still got plenty of bulk dry grass at the moment and going back the last three years, we had all the bulk you could have imagined, but just no quality. So we've been using a lot of drylick, like bypass drylick. And uh, we also do a bit with molasses and urea, just trying to supplement the cattle to help them process all that dry lignin. I think getting back to your original point there that in wet or dry, I think dual purpose crops offer a lot of versatility to farmers. Mate, just a question I had about the different species of, of dual purpose crops. So we've got vetch or wheat, canolas, those sorts of, or, or your pure fodder crops. What sort of instance would you use different crop species? If we were still into the land production, especially at the, with the managed country, without a doubt, we'd be doing a bit more with dual purpose canola. I think you, you probably saw our brassica up there last year and it was a real coup. It was quite amazing what it could do. But just the, the, the animal health issues do scare me a little bit just with having only cattle to handle that the winter canola and, and the brassica crops. The benefit of especially winter wheat, there's a lot of good varieties and, and you know you've got a good commodity to sell at the end of the day that you can, even in a really bumper year, there's somewhere that you can deliver wheat to and, and sit on it until you want to sell it whereas... Some of the more niche ones like maybe trit and some other things like that, even oats, for example, in those bumper years like 2016 and 2020, 21, often there's just nowhere to deliver it to. So that that can get a bit tricky too. So if you're growing those, you'd probably want to have some real on-farm storage. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, just seeing back to 2016, I had clients that couldn't get 120 bucks on farm for barley. So they just, they buried it in pits, which was the best thing they ever did. Absolutely. Those pits have been worth their weight in gold almost since then. 
I think it was worth about 120 when they were burying it and they were pulling it back out when it was worth 400. So they were pretty happy. Yeah, absolutely. And what about Vetch, mate? Have you had much experience with that? No, I can't say I have. We, we haven't had any around here. It's something I've wondered why we don't. They're just trying to have a, a saleable grain crop that out the other end as well. And I guess too our, our sort of pillar pasture has always been loosened. So that's our big legume and, and disease break and then we're, we're coming back into our dual purpose crop for four or five years and then we're back out to a, a legume pasture so I guess for us we're more just a couple of years of wheat maybe a year of barley and then a couple of years of oats and then we're back out to loosen again. Yeah it's a good point like there's probably not much point in putting vetch in if you've got a heap of loosen out there because it's not providing much difference yeah that's it i don't think it brings a lot to the table for us like down south where they've where they're in more permanent cropping rotations it's it's probably got to fit have you had any experience with uh those mix of species so like a legume a brassica and a grass sort of all mixed together yeah not really i don't know if you noticed our oats in the front paddock here there's a bit of canola through it that was not intentional Uh, mate, it's always a far- farmer trial, isn't it? It's always a farmer trial. Exactly. So I, I guess um, – but seeing that and watching what the cattle have done with it, it almost does tempt me a little bit. But again, like with our dual-purpose crops, we're trying to have something saleable in the grain sort of space as well. Who knows, maybe we can put a brassica in and then and then blow it out in the spring with an amine or something when we lock the crops up. But other than that, yeah, the, I haven't done a lot with multi-species crops. Going on a bit of your experience as an, as an agronomist, probably which crops, particular instances that maybe stand out the most as, as a best and worst? Well, from the agronomy days, definitely there was a couple of um, proud moments. We won the Premier Shield up at Rock Edgel with sorghum. We actually won the, the state wheat comp out at Tungi with a, a crop of, I think it was sun lamb at the time. But just uh, like definitely in 2016, I know we... We had plenty of clients and at home we pulling five tonne of wheat off after 120 days of grazing as well. So if you push the calculator button on the gross margin for that, it's pretty scary. What is a gross margin on that? Yeah, it depends on cattle prices and everything, but it's probably not unrealistic to think you could be sort of $1,000 in the clear when you take your stock off the paddock. So then, you know, plus your grain yield could be another $1,000 in that quite easily. It's pretty exciting, I think. The worst crop was probably one of my own. It was a share farming endeavour in um, 2019. So what turned out to be the the worst year of the drought probably. And <laughs> Good I think, timing. I Good think timing. we're still waiting for it to come up. So <laughs> not a proud moment. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess there is wins and losses, but the upside is really huge potential. And like I might have mentioned before, even the dual purpose crops in in those tough drought years, as long as we got them out of the ground, they still did provide some very valuable grazing, yeah, just to value add some stock. You just mentioned before about a a forage brassica crop you had. We actually all came up and had a look at a progress course we were running last year and some of the advice that we gave was because the moisture content of the brassica was so high that you just run some hot wires and electrify and and split up regardless of whether the crop had water. Did you end up taking the advice and doing as we suggested? Of course I did, yes. It's about a 50 hectare paddock and and we we had sort of mobs of lambs of 12 to 1500 and it 
they just weren't marking it. There just wasn't enough of them. So we cut it into three different cells and we did actually graze. The bottom cell didn't have access to a trough. Obviously, it was through the middle of winter, so it was fine and we kept an eye on them. And the top two cells shared a trough, so that was reassuring, I suppose, not that they really needed it. And I think the best thing about locking it up, it, it made them chew down the whole plant, made them eat the stems and everything rather than just peeling off the really lush leaf and we had stock on that crop which was a bit earlier than ideal but we had them on 28 days after sowing mainly because I was scared if we waited any longer it would just be falling over and, and the trampling would have been an issue. So we had stock on that crop from from about the 15th of March last year and right through to early December. So it, it ran an, an amazing amount of stock, yeah. Sort of fattened our spring lambs in the autumn, and then and then we weaned our autumn lambs onto it in the spring, and it also yeah fattened a mob of trade sheep in between as well. So pretty amazing for fifty hectares, and a pretty good gross margin on that. So were you just rotating them around a few weeks in one? Yeah, uh, of yeah. The three essentially, paddocks? like we only ever had one mob in the paddock, but yeah, just really hitting each third properly and making them just eat the whole lot, and then it was. It was amazing you'd move move them on and even within a week after you move them out, you got little leaves coming back on the stalks, you know, left, right and centre. So I think to get the duration of the grazing, we had to hit it hard. Otherwise, it, there was a few corners in the paddock, you know, and around trees that ended up sort of five or six foot tall and, and they just couldn't utilise them. So. so that really hard grazing and, and crash grazing essentially made the subsequent growth more manageable? Definitely, yeah. Yep. And it just allowed them to utilize what did grow a lot better without the trampling and all that sort of thing. The only thing with a, a crop like that, it does take a lot more management than, say, just having a 100 hectare paddock of wheat that we can put 300 wieners in and let them enjoy it. You know, if we had three or 400 hectares of that brassica, it would be yeah, a lot of work to really make sure we did the right thing by it. So was that speaking back, touching back on that nitrogen thing, did you have to top dress? Yeah, we did. I think we, just trying to think back, I think we might have hit it twice. Yeah, we hit it sort of midwinter and then again in the spring. And once they were onto the brassica, did they stay on there for sort of a few weeks or were you taking them on Yeah, off? no, we, we tried to keep it consistent and just keep them on there for the duration. So I think it was at the ProGraze course, I uh, just can't remember the name of the guy. And he was sort of, he made the point that it, it is a very different diet from a brassica to like a, a grass crop or pasture, almost like going into a grain feed lot. That's how different it is. So, yeah, we were definitely trying to get them on and keep them on. We did have a bit of trouble with photosensitization at the start. And I think that was just probably because the, the crop hadn't reached its maturity that they talk about but it was that was a bit of a balancing act we just had to get stock on or it was going to be too far gone mate get two agronomists in a room talk about crops well the time's really gotten away from me but i think just before we wrap up for my final question i'd like to ask what do you think is the big issue in australian ag at the moment i thought this one might be coming and i'm ready for you i've probably got three answers i've got a short term a mid-term and a long term I think the short term is one that we're fighting at the moment is pigs. They're just blown out in numbers and we just can't go anywhere without seeing either them or, or their damage. I was talking to our biosecurity officer this morning in Kerner and I think he's got 
a run out to Canamble and he's going to give five tons of wheat out of poison wheat. It's crazy. Crazy, yeah, and I'm sure they'll, there'll be more left after they've had that. I think midterm is just the access to capital for young farmers to take on farming, whether it's the family farm or to buy in on other farms. But I think that's definitely a, a big challenge, especially you look at the average age of our farmers. And then I think long-term, the thing that does scare me a bit is just climate variability and how we manage that. That's a very thoughtful and considered answer, mate. They're all huge. Hopefully the pigs is a fairly short-term one and that's more a seasonal thing. But yeah, obviously climate change and that's a really big picture and hopefully our governments and across the world can start to do something about it. That's it. And it's going to take a bit of solving those last couple. Food for thought. <laughs> Thanks, Ed. Thanks. I've really enjoyed today and hopefully our listeners get a bit out of dual purpose crops. Thank you, Lucy. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.